Okay, so I'm here with Akash. Um, do you want to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what you're doing at the moment and yeah, what your background is? Sounds good. Uh, thank you for having me on your podcast, Sarah. My name is Akash. To those of you listening, uh, I used to be a PhD student studying clinical psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. I was focused on digital mental health treatments and interventions. And I left my PhD program to focus on AI safety work in um, 2022. Um, so this was before ChatGPT, but some folks had presented about some of the uh, opportunities and risks from transformative artificial intelligence. And I was persuaded by some of the arguments. So I decided to take a gap year to get involved in AI safety work. And I ended up leaving my PhD after realizing how interesting and exciting and important the work was. And I now focus on AI governance and AI policy work. So thinking about what kinds of rules and regulations, whether, uh, policies that companies can follow or policies that governments can impose onto the, uh, the world, what kinds of rules and regulations might be best for navigating the transition toward uh, very advanced and potentially very dangerous artificial intelligence systems. Cool. Um, so yeah, do you want to say a bit more about like what, uh, what arguments persuaded you to like make obviously quite the quite a big decision to leave your PhD? Um, what like clinched the deal for you? What made you think actually, yeah, this is super important. Like I need to drop everything and start working on this. Yeah, great question. I think there were two main factors or two main ways I was thinking about it. One was how much I actually just believed that this AI stuff was going to be a big deal and how much it was going to be important and kind of like the moral slash ethical component. Like did I actually believe that the world could benefit a lot from very powerful artificial intelligence that was going well and did i believe some of the arguments that if the transition occurs poorly the um world could go very very poorly including uh, issues with um issues at the scale of global security crises human extinction that kind of stuff um so i think those arguments were somewhat influential and the second part was can i do anything about it and do, do i feel like i'm a good fit for the space and so i think um the first part was very intellectual. It was very much about reading some of the arguments about how transformative artificial intelligence, if it goes well, could really produce a bunch of economic value, could help us um, cure a bunch of diseases, could help us reform the global economy in ways that allow everyone to prosper more, could help reduce the um, horrors of factory farming, you know, just basically many different, and as a clinical psych grad student, I was also quite interested in the potential for transformative AI to help make various mental health breakthroughs. So just I, I felt pretty compelled that um, com compelled by the reasoning that artificial intelligence systems as they get more powerful could be very beneficial in various sectors that I cared about from an ethical lens. And then on the flip side, I was uh, convinced that at least some of the arguments around AI being developed in the context of a like race where companies are incentivized to keep on going faster and faster without necessarily taking like the, the due precautions could result in AI that is either misused or gets out of human control in ways that result in some sort of widespread loss of control scenario or some sort of um, uh, global catastrophic uh, risk event, including potentially um, human extinction type events. Um, 
So those were some of the things that were on my mind on the sort of intellectual moral side. And then on the more personal side, I think it involved a lot of like going to various conferences, meeting people who are working in the space, realizing how few people there were who were thinking about these things and realizing that some of my uh, perspective, even as a non-technical person, as someone who didn't learn you know, computer science or didn't study computer science or math could be valuable in the space. Yeah, this is like something that I've realized as well, even though I haven't um, attempted to transition into this, uh, like career wise, I have noticed that I think you'd, you'd assume that there were a, a lot more people on the ball on this than that there actually are. <laughs> and then when you start looking into it, you're like, okay, like this is still very like niche and very small. And they're like, uh, not nearly enough people focusing on it. Um, so yeah, that's really cool. I'm wondering, like, is there anything um, from your PhD, like any knowledge or skills that you think like are continuing to benefit you now that you're working on the AI stuff? Ooh, great question. I think um, I think a lot of the experience I had with like research in general seems to be useful. I think um, so. I was in a clinical psych PhD program, but the program really emphasized research. Like the you know, it wasn't like a program that was primarily teaching you how to be a therapist. Like you learn about therapy and how you do practice therapy, and you do spend some hours per week doing therapy. But really, the the much stronger emphasis is on coming up with research ideas, pursuing research ideas, knowing how to operationalize research ideas into actual experiments that you can run, knowing how to write up your findings in ways that are clear. So I think the researcher mentality of like being able to think about various directions to go and prioritize, like it sounds kind of vague. It's like thinking about ideas and then picking which ones are good and then knowing how much to work on them and when to pivot. But I think that kind of general um, critical thinking or critical thinking skills applied to research is one of the things that's that stood uh, stuck with me most and I think has been valuable. Another thing is I got to work with a lot of undergraduates. I think this was a really great part of uh, Penn's program. Like there was a lot of ability to mentor undergraduate students in research, a lot of opportunity to work on research projects with other undergraduate students and graduate students. So things along the lines of just like working in teams, knowing how to communicate well and clearly, knowing like how I might differ from other people that people are working with so I can like set expectations better at the beginning of projects. Um, and just generally being able to know like, okay, here's how flaky people are. Here's like how to structure projects at the beginning where, you know, you test people out in certain ways and see what they can and can't do. And then, you know, don't be too surprised if like, especially if you haven't worked with someone before, maybe a few weeks into it, they end up having other priorities, like those kinds of like project management, people management kinds of skills, I think were very uh, valuable coming into this. And then maybe some of the mental health content specifically, I think um, as with a lot of, um, a lot of areas that have a lot of young people and have a lot of people who are like really, really driven and really, really sort of um, obsessive or perfectionistic about their work. I think AI safety has, you know, some folks who aren't in the best shape in terms of their mental health and well-being. And I think some of the um, like actual learning about cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology interventions uh, have been useful. Obviously, I don't you know do therapy on on my friends and peers and colleagues, but having that perspective is useful sometimes in terms of just you know giving people recommendations for where they can seek help or just making sure people are aware of certain types of tools that might be um, might be helpful for them. Yeah, cool. Um, another thing I was kind of thinking about is like I feel like there's any part of I was wondering if there's any part of you that maybe resents is the wrong word but I guess mm -hmm. like if you're 
working on a PhD in a subject that you are personally really passionate about and then you come uh, into contact with these AI arguments and you kind of realize that there might be this like these, uh, this massive transition about to happen very soon that could kind of possibly render a lot of that research kind of obsolete or <laughs> make it not, not as impactful as, or, you know, you realize, oh, you could have a way bigger impact working on AI than on, you know, this other stuff that you might be personally really interested in, but you're like, well, you know, maybe this isn't as important as I thought it was because maybe in a few years, you know, either we'll have found some way to kind of like automate all of this anyway, or, you know, we, we, we've all died and none of it's helpful, <laughs> to put it bluntly. But like, I'm wondering if like in, um, in a world where this change wasn't on the horizon or where, where you know, AI wasn't going to have as big of an impact, like, like, would you still have been like working on the, I mean, you would still have been working on the psych stuff, but do you ever kind of wish that you were still able to work on that and that you felt that it was going to be as impactful or as important as you initially thought when you went into it, if that makes sense? Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think, I think a big part of it was thinking, okay, if, if some of this AI stuff is serious, if, if some of this AI stuff is true, and you can never know with 100% certainty, like at the time, especially in 2022, before ChatGPT, I wasn't like, oh, there's an 100% chance that everything's going to be automated in 10 years, or this global security crisis is going to happen in 15 years or whatever. But there was a sizable probability, I think a non-negligible probability in my head, uh, maybe at least you know 20%, that as a result of the AI revolution, a lot of my mental health research would be pretty obsolete and a lot of a lot of people's medical research would be um, obsolete. Like if we get artificial intelligence systems that are as good at, as humans at various types of scientific reasoning, then you know, does it really matter if I publish the 40th paper on some interesting like depression app? Like probably at that point, the AI systems that are uh, extremely powerful at scientific reasoning will be able to uh, do that kind of stuff even faster than I could or at a scale that's much uh, larger than I could. Um, there's definitely a part of me that misses my PhD um, and sort of wishes that the AI, uh, you know, revolution wasn't so pressing to me that I left a field that I was very, um, in a lot of ways, I think a good fit for. Um, I think I have like a subjective passion and interest and love for psychology. Often one of the things I love to do with my friends is just like analyze their emotional lives. I think I think very naturally like a psychologist. I think the way I see the world is very rooted through like how people feel, how groups of people affect each other. Um, and so from a personal like subjective interest perspective, I think I do wish that the, you know, uh, like mental health work I was doing ended up being something that I um, thought was going to be like the most important or the most impactful or the most, um, you know, morally uh, consistent thing I could be doing. Um, but the, the good news is I think there's a lot of intellectually stimulating stuff in the AI safety world. And I think I still get to use some parts of my psych brain, both when I'm doing actual AI policy work and then also more informally, just, you know, people have drama and conflict and people <laughs> sometimes come to me for advice. And there's definitely a lot of analyzing people and uh, their relationships and figuring out who should be dating who and, you know, all that kind of stuff that I like to do in my free time with my friends. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, cool. So once you'd like made the decision to transfer into the um, AI safety world, what was your kind of like strategy? Like, how did you think about how you could have the most impact? What was like, what was, yeah, what was your like initial journey like? Yeah, so I started off doing a lot of learning 
Um, it was really interesting. I, I, by the time I left my PhD, I was like three years into grad school. And by then I felt like I was already pretty much an expert in the subfield that I was in, like the digital mental health arena. Um, but it took me like at least one or two years of just kind of like learning stuff to really get to the point where I was able to do research that I felt was pretty meaningful. Um, so there was a lot of resetting and being like, okay, I'm entering into a new field. Let me learn up a bunch. Let me read a lot of the stuff people are writing about AI safety and also like the potential benefits of artificial general intelligence. And I was working on some uh, AI safety recruitment and outreach projects. So at the time, we didn't have ChatGPT yet. And so like frontier AI or large language model AI stuff was not as uh, popular of an area as it is right now. and um, a lot of my work was focused on supporting some of the groups that were trying to raise awareness about AI safety, for instance, on college campuses, and try to get uh, new people interested in the field or find new people who are already interested in the field and give them interesting opportunities, um, give them, you know, help them network in the field, make sure they're aware of the relevant conferences, the relevant research mentorship programs, the various open problems in the field that people could work on. One example of a project that I got involved with was I actually traveled in India for a bit and raised awareness about AI and AI safety research at some um, institutions in India, some of the IITs, uh, Indian Institutes of Technology. So I went to about four or five cities in India and raised awareness about some open problems in AI safety research. We did little hackathons and stuff where a bunch of students would like try to brainstorm, how are we going to make sure that the powerful AI system allows us to turn it off? Like, here are some mathematical proposals that could be, uh, you know, pitched, uh, you know, in the context of a one-day hackathon. Obviously, no one's going to make a major uh, research breakthrough in just like a few hours of thinking about it. Um, but I think that was a really uh interesting example of this kind of like recruitment outreach uh sort of philosophy or sort of uh set of projects and then when i got back from india which was in like late 2022 um i worked with a few colleagues on more strategic stuff sort of laying out the ai landscape and trying to figure out what we thought some of the most important um areas of intervention would be and one of the things that i found myself um coming back to during that period, and I think some of my colleagues did as well, was how tricky developing AI safely would be in the context of a corporate race toward very powerful AI systems. So thinking a lot more about what people call race dynamics between companies and the competitive pressures that are pushing for faster and faster AI development without necessarily being able to slow down or have gradual progress that would be better from an AI safety perspective. And then from there, I started to transition myself into AI governance and AI policy work. Um, I worked at the Center for AI Safety on AI governance research for about five, six months, and that was uh, a great experience, a lot of freedom to think about federal policy. I was I was helping out with a response to the NTIA request for comments. The NTIA is this um, branch of the US government, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which I had never really known much about before, but they were one of the first executive branch agencies to put out some sort of call for comments, uh, request for comments, where they basically say, hey, we're gonna do some thinking about AI, we want groups, you know, companies, nonprofits, et cetera, to submit 
um, uh, information to us, and they listed out some questions they were particularly interested in relating to AI accountability and AI auditing. And so I was thinking a lot about what does accountable AI look like? What kinds of safety standards would we want to see Frontier AI Lab, uh, Frontier AI developers following? And um, I also just got involved with a few other projects that were going on at the Center for AI Safety at the time, including the uh, case AI risk statement, which ended up being, I think, a really big deal and one of the most impressive yeah. sort of moments of uh, 2023 in terms of advancing the AI governance, AI policy conversations. Um, and then after uh, working at the Center for AI Safety for a bit, I got involved in this um, sort of startup, if you will, like a policy startup called the Center for AI Policy. One of my friends and colleagues, uh, Thomas Larson, started it. It's this organization in DC that's doing a lot of advocacy to um, congressional staffers and executive branch folks trying to make sure that people are aware of some of the um, uh, most important topics in AI safety, trying to draft legislation, trying to draft other types of policy proposals that people could actually implement to make things a bit better. And uh, now I'm uh, working with Control AI, which is also in the sort of comms campaigning advocacy, um, AI governance, AI policy space. So that's that's been a bit of the the AI the AI recruitment outreach to AI governance policy journey. Yeah, awesome. Um, you have this really fascinating uh, dialogue on less wrong, which I will, yeah, I'll link this in the in the description if people haven't seen it. Um, but you're, yeah, you're talking about like your experience going to DC, talking with all these like congressional staffers. Um, I think it's interesting that you kind of say that you, well, one thing that's interesting is I guess that that no one had done this before or no one had done it to the same extent, it seemed like it would have been a, um, an obvious move to try and reach out to people and, and start discussing this, but it seems like maybe that was something that people hadn't really done before. So that's really interesting. Um, but you also talk about like the the staffers you talk to being way more open to the idea that AI could be an existential threat than you kind of like expected. Um, do you want to? I'm just interested in that. Do you want to talk more about that? Like more about what their attitudes were? Like what surprised you about how people reacted? Um, yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, so this was around June, um, I believe, like May or June of 2023, when I went to DC and started talking to congressional staffers. Um, one thing I'll say is I, I don't want to make the claim that no one was, no one in the air safety world was talking to policymakers. I do think it was a, an area that people were underinvested in, especially on the congressional side. I think some folks were sort of like, um, hey, maybe we should focus on uh, you know, informing executive branch decisions. Um, maybe um, there are certain specific government agencies that seem to be um, like focused on AI or like, for instance, issuing requests for comments about AI that we want to develop relationships with. Um, and I, I imagine that it's possible that there were some people doing more stuff on the congressional side that I just didn't hear about. So, I, I, you know, I, I don't know every single person who's been caring about AI existential risks. But yeah, I, I sort of got the vibe that a lot of groups that I expected were doing more uh, direct advising to Congress or more direct advising to the executive branch um, weren't actually focusing on that. I had a lot of conversations with people at conferences where they said, oh, you know, no one at our organization is doing that. No one at our think tank is doing that. Like our, you know, approach is more so to uh, research various topics and write various research papers. And then uh, when I sort of pressed and said, well, how do you make sure that that research is actually going somewhere or getting implemented or people who 
are making relevant decisions or aware of that research. I wasn't very satisfied with the answers. I think there was a bit, and then I saw this in academia too. Maybe this is one way in which my grad school experience ends up informing me in these more implicit ways. But I think in, in academia, for instance, there's often this sort of like culture of like, you know, focus on the research, make sure the research is as good as it can be. And then there's this whole like burgeoning field in, in at least health research right now and mental health research called implementation science, where the people are like, wait a second, like, don't you guys realize that even if your research is really, really good, there's this whole other problem, which is like getting it to actually be implemented to getting policymakers or uh, healthcare institutions to actually know what the best practices are. Um, and I think I was noticing a somewhat similar thing in AI safety, where lots of people were attracted to the space as like a researcher type, uh, you know, as like a person who really likes studying like nuanced questions about hardware or nuanced questions about large language models or whatever. Um, but then when there's this like extra step, which is that the research has to yield recommendations that end up reaching people who can use them, uh, it didn't seem to me like some of the AI safety think tanks were focusing on uh, as much on that. Um, I think part of the reason why is that people are worried when they're actually interacting with stakeholders who matter, right? Like if you give bad recommendations, it could reflect poorly on your organization. It could reflect poorly on the entire field. If people misunderstand the recommendations, you might get them, for example, to think, oh, wow, you know, transformative AI, that's so exciting. What what you're, you, are, you guys are telling us about the safety stuff, oh, that doesn't matter so much to us. I, I've, I've heard people say this before, and I find mm -hmm. it a little bit difficult to believe that people are going to, you know, that you're going to come in and talk to a politician and say, yeah, this is potentially really powerful, but also potentially really dangerous, and that they somehow won't hear the dangerous part and will only hear the powerful part. Like, I don't know, it just, I, I can't, I can't put myself in the position of being a politician that someone's coming to me and saying this thing you know like yeah like it could have all this potential upside but you know if we get it wrong it might kill everyone and 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 going oh uh well oh so you, you say it could make me lots of money like you say that like this I, I don't know like i i just it's i find that really difficult to believe that that kind of level of miscommunication could actually happen in real life um but maybe i'm completely wrong about that and i just don't know enough about how politicians brains work work but um yeah it's weird i mean i have yeah. the same intuitions as you on this where you know it, it, even though there's some risk of, of things being miscommunicated as long as one is communicating clearly and honestly it seems like a you know a, a worthwhile thing to do but um with policymakers, the common example that people use is um maybe policymakers will hear that ai is such a big deal and then they'll end up focusing on making sure that the US stays ahead of China. And, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, in many ways, we're in a situation now where the US is quite a bit ahead of every other country in terms of frontier AI development. But if some sort of policymaker heard, oh, okay, the number one priority in terms of national and global security is AI. And, you know, the number one thing I've been worried about for my entire career is making sure that the Soviet Union and now China uh, or like the Soviet Union back in the day and like China now, uh, like don't end up like uh, threatening US, you know, global supremacy. Um, if that's like sort of the, the lens that they're viewing the world through, perhaps then they will end up um, imposing that lens onto the AI conversation, for instance. Um, and I think that's a, like a legitimate concern. I think it ended up, um, my opinion at least, is it ended up causing people to be too reluctant 
to speak up about AI safety concerns until more recently. And even now, I think some of the, the think tanks and AI safety groups um, could be doing more, but haven't really developed the infrastructure, or haven't prepared for this, or haven't taken this moment as seriously as uh, maybe like uh, I think they could be. Um, and I guess some of this is informed by some of my experiences talking with some of the congressional staffers. And like one big caveat here is that um, congressional staffers are like, uh, they want to tell, they, they, they like take a lot of meetings with people and it doesn't really make sense for them to like get people to have meetings with them and then feel like sad or disappointed or frustrated, right? Like part of the job, as I understand it, is you do really value the input of various stakeholders and you want to make them feel listened to and heard and comfortable and like you're happy with them even if their opinions don't end up really mattering to you or don't end up changing your mind in, in meaningful ways so i, I want to factor that in to some degree um but i was i was genuinely quite impressed and surprised with the fact that people seemed very open-minded a lot of people already had intuitions that if you build intelligent systems that are smarter than humans, lots of things could go wrong. A lot of people had um, sort of already had a bunch of their own concerns about how AI could, could shape the world, including uh, global security concerns, but also they like mentioned real big concerns about misinformation and deep fakes, uh, uh, the economy and how much automation might happen. And I think relative to the Bay Area, where I think the, the vibe around AI is like, heck yeah, technology to change the world, like the Bay Area is going to like change society. I think the DC vibe or the congressional staffer vibe was like, this is like a big deal. And it's kind of scary that it's happening so fast. And like, you know, no one really consulted like the government on like how these changes are going to uh, occur and maybe it would make sense to go a bit more slowly to guarantee to, to you know improve the chances that things go go safely. Um, so yeah, I think I think that also was encouraging in terms of making me think it's um, more promising than I used to to actually have these like frank and and upfront conversations with uh, government policymakers. Yeah, and another thing you um, kind of talk about in the dialogue is that one of your takeaways from doing this is that the Overton window is wider or potentially wider than people might think. Um, I guess if this was like, what was this like six months ago now that you did this? Um, and since then we've had like the AI safety summit and like a, a bunch of other things like have, have, has, has the six months since you talked to the congressional staffers reaffirmed that belief that the Overton window is wide and that it's the things are shifting in the right direction. Like are things shifting as much as you think they need to, are they going you know, like, a, do, do you think the conversation is trending in the right direction? Or were you disappointed with the outcome of the summit? Or like, where are you now, having seen all of that? Yeah, I think Overton window extremely wide and extremely unpredictable is the main thing I keep coming back to. Like, I think a lot of folks, myself included, were very surprised at how quickly it shifted. And so I think it's quite plausible it could shift again. Um, and I think people who are very confident that like, it's not going to shift, I'm sort of, uh, I'm often kind of surprised by or I don't, I don't, think that that's a super reasonable position. The position that I do find reasonable, though, which is in a, in a bit more of a pessimistic direction, is that even if people care, even if people are concerned, it's kind of hard to get stuff to happen, especially big stuff to happen. And I don't think it's impossible. I think it's worth fighting for. And I think, uh, you know, I, for instance, personally, 
Um, and many of the, the, the folks who I interact with think that the world would be much safer if we were able to ban the development of smarter than human AI systems or significantly limit the development of uh, smarter than human AI systems such that it only is able to occur in some sort of international facility that's extremely safety minded and security minded. Um, and at the very least, we should be able to have the infrastructure in place such that if later on we see some sort of imminent threat or like the US government or the UN or whatever sees some sort of imminent threat, they're able to very quickly halt a training run or withdraw a model that's deployed and make sure everything freezes as we figure out what we need to do as a society to, to get through that kind of critical risk period. Um, but these kinds of specific policy actions, I think, are what's missing. I think it, it's been a really great past six months from the perspective of like acknowledging, hey, a ton of world experts think that mitigating the risk, to, uh, mitigating risks to human extinction from AI is a big deal, is a serious deal. It's on the same level of importance as risks from pandemics and nuclear war. Getting a lot of interesting dialogue. I think people like Joshua Bengio and Jeffrey Hinden entering the conversation has done a lot. I think the UK AI Safety Summit being able to recognize catastrophic risks and get a bunch of world leaders together to talk seriously about some of the global security risks here is really, really huge. But I, I don't think I've seen as much like meaningful movement in terms of actual concrete policy. Um, the EU AI Act, we're still like waiting to see what how they end up operationalizing a lot of the safety standards that they uh, have ended up like, you know, it's great that the thing passed, but we don't really know how it's going to affect frontier AI development. And we probably won't know for at least a couple of years is the impression I have, um, or at least it won't be in, in, uh, enforced for a couple of years. Um, and then the AI executive order, for instance, is is great in terms of having a foundation or a starting point. It's great that companies are going to need to tell people, hey, we're doing this training run. Or, hey, we're using like roughly this much compute. Hey, you know, here are some results from some of the safety tests we voluntarily ran. Um, but the um, the fact that the reporting requirements only start at 10 to the 26th flop, and now I'm getting a little bit into the weeds, but the fact that the reporting requirements only start when you're developing really, really powerful, really, really potentially dangerous systems is um, a bummer. And the fact that it's simply reporting requirements, I mean, it gets great to make sure that the government knows what's going on. And I think a lot of the uh, future Overton window shifting might occur if the government is better able to like understand what's actually happening and what like artificial general intelligence really means and what kinds of risks are being discovered as the companies keep scaling. Um, but I think it's quite plausible that it's like some sort of too little too late kind of vibe. I think um, if we were, if the stated concerns, like if, if the world was really taking AI risks as seriously as um, they take nuclear risks, for instance, I think the actual policies that were on the table would look a lot more um, intense and it wouldn't be as like, oh, hey, just like tell us, you know, if, if you're going to build a private nuclear facility that's like this big, just make sure that you fill out some paperwork and let us know you're doing it. I think the, the conversation <laughs> would be a bit different than that yeah, so. it's, kind of, it's kind of incredible actually like thinking about this again like maybe i'm like betraying my own naivety about how politics works or how difficult it is to get things enforced but the fact that it is literally just yeah like a requirement to like if you're going to do this super dangerous thing just like give us a heads up first <laughs> like you yeah. think you think it wouldn't be that hard to just like you know go one step further than that and have like actual licensing requirements um or like you know have 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 some mechanism by which the government can just be like actually no you can't do that um 
it's just kind of incredible to me that that's not like a, a no-brainer to implement but obviously I'm sure it's way more complicated than that for reasons that I don't understand um and the good like, news oh, the no, good news on. is I think um even though I I am critical of the fact that we haven't seen like meaningful policy get implemented yet um the fact that the discourse has advanced and the fact that people do seem to have like uh for the most part a common um understanding that these thing that these ai systems are extremely risky um it's like starting to get certain things in place that could be good in 2024 for instance so the executive order for example i don't think on its own it's going to be a huge deal but i think the fact that the government is now like okay we're going to be tracking what's going on and we know that um compute is like the big thing to be looking at and the labs that are doing training runs with a lot of computer a lot of flop are the ones we need to be paying attention to that's like a step in you know the right direction it's like okay now maybe that helps get some sort of licensing scheme down the line or it helps get some sort of emergency response infrastructure which is another policy recommendation i've been pretty um uh strongly advocating for maybe it helps the government devote some funding to some group eg at the department of commerce or the department of um well, so usually we talk about the department of commerce i guess it could be in a different department but it, maybe it helps get funding for like nist or the usaic institute or the department of commerce to um have some sort of risk tracking team maybe someone uh, some group of people that is like reviewing the reporting that the labs are doing and doing some of their own sort of proactive investigating to make sure that if there is some sort of sudden risk there's uh, appropriate measures in place to for example halt some sort of training run delete some sort of model weights prevent the model from being trained until information security uh standards are at a certain level um so it's possible that the EU AI Act, for example, ends up becoming something that's strong, or the executive order ends up feeding into something that's that's stronger, um, or that the recent US AI Safety Institute that is going to be um, attached to NIST, I think, or or maybe NIST runs it. I don't know exactly what the hierarchy is. That that is going to like impose some sort of like actual uh, safety standards on companies. Um, but right now, it's a lot of that sort of like, oh, we we have a thing could lead nowhere or it could end up being the first step on a you know three four five step chain into something that's actually more that has more teeth to it yeah okay um i'm also wondering kind of like just to get your like um your take obviously your your stance is that we or if, if possible we ought to have some kind of moratorium or some kind of pause like you've got the little pause emoji in your <laughs> twitter name um i'm curious about because there are a lot of people who like share the belief that uh ai systems could be extremely dangerous and they might even have a stated like probability of extinction which is like terrifyingly high and yet they still don't come down on the side of uh needing to pause or thinking that's like possible or feasible um and it's seen as being like almost uh yeah like utopian or naive to advocate for that or to think that that's even possible um which i think is strange um but there are a couple of like when I think about this and like what the the arguments those people would make, there are two that kind of stand out to me. One being the kind of like compute overhang argument um, that, you know, if we have a pause now, then at some point in the future when we unpause, we'll get this really terrifying, massive leap forward in capabilities that we would otherwise have been more gradual. Um, and the other one being the idea that you can't do safety research 
without advancing capabilities research at the same time. Like you couldn't research alignment um, absent capabilities advancing. Um, so like, I mean, it's a bit of a random question, but I'm just wondering if you've thought about either of those two arguments and like how you would respond to them. Yeah, yeah, no, great to, to bring up some of the counter arguments. Um, I, I think I don't really, um, how do you frame it? I, I've really tried to engage with the compute overhang stuff. And I think I understand the argument. I think it's not a strong argument. Uh, I think I think where it comes from is um, people might have thought that, oh, the point of a pause is to then just keep going after the pause in the same way that you would have otherwise. And that's not what uh, the intelligent like uh, like AI policy advocates are saying. I think I think the pause stuff has been easy for um, honestly, I think the pause stuff has been easy for like bad faith actors to like take advantage of because pausing sounds kind of silly and pausing and then playing like without doing anything in between, it would lead to, to compute overhang problems. And then we can debate how severe they would be. But um, the thing that doesn't seem to suffer from compute overhang would be if there are some policies in place that like fundamentally change the AI development ecosystem. And I, I try to frame things more like that in like a pause. I care what kinds of policies would have been implemented during that pause. And I think one of the reasons I, I like the idea of pausing smarter than human AI progress is um, this would give governments a little bit more time to figure out what they want that AI development ecosystem to look like. And it would give companies more time to figure out what they want their internal policies to look like um, in order to make sure that the development that does occur occurs uh, safely. Um, but yeah, if you end up having a licensing system, for example, um, where the government has to review certain applications to build AI systems that are pushing the frontier or that could be um, smarter than human AI systems, um, or any sort of AI system that has credible global security risks, then you don't suffer from the compute overhang thing, because the government can tell you things like, hey, we don't approve this training run, so you can't increase your model compute by 10x or 100x. Or they could say, hey, we like your plan overall, but instead of going 100x higher, like, can you only go 4x higher? We think that would be nice, and we can see the results from that and then keep going. Um, so even though it is true that like algorithmic progress would improve during a pause period, it, it's more about giving governments time to um, figure out what kinds of things they're going to do to the AI development ecosystem, which is why um, the compute overhang stuff doesn't seem as as uh, salient to me. Um, you might think that, it, and of course, you have to assume that like a pause would result in good policies. I guess if someone was like, well, 99%, like nothing would happen during a six month pause, then I would be like, okay, well, all right. Maybe then you would be worried that in that six month period, there's some sort of algorithm breakthrough and you know, society doesn't have that, as much time to prepare, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then the other argument you mentioned was the... Uh, was this idea that you need capabilities pro progress to make safety progress. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me like if I just look at the like most meaningful examples of safety progress in the last year or two, a lot of them, not not all of them, but a lot of them don't require like large models. Um, it seems like there's, uh, I think someone used the term like safety overhang or something where, okay, like in general, sure, the next generation of models do give you uh, 
you know, better access to safety research, but perhaps we have advanced capabilities so far that there's a lot of catching up to do. So for example, some of the cutting edge interpretability work is currently like playing around with GPT-2 and some of the like most impressive uh, interpretability findings are based on like, what can we understand about GPT-2? Um, Redwood Research recently released like an AI control framework that uses GPT-4, but most of the progress, uh, in my opinion, is conceptual and it relates to sort of the framework that they're using and sort of the way they're going about using the the models to assure um, whether or not like you could use an untrusted model to still get useful research. Um, and so it doesn't seem clear to me that you need a new generation of models to advance some of that kind of um, like sort of hybrid conceptual empirical work. Um, and then a ton of, of uh, AI safety research that um, I think is worth emphasizing. Um, is about trying to understand on a high level what's going on with AI systems? Are there ways to develop AI systems that have different architectures? Um, Max Tegmark has talked a bit about safe by design systems. Um, and I think a lot of the AI safety research that's happening outside of the deep learning paradigm seems like it doesn't require AI capabilities research at all. Um, I mean, it could, could be useful once, uh, you know, like certain developments in uh, capabilities progress does have implications for that kind of work. But um, I think for the most part, I could see that area of research progressing for at least several more years, if not longer, without needing any sort of uh, major AI capabilities breakthroughs in order to, to still make uh, useful progress. Yeah. Okay. Those are good. That, that's, that's, those are useful counter arguments to have in my back pocket for whenever someone <laughs> comes at me with a. Yeah. I, I think. I think the the way I would want the society, like if I if I could wave a magic wand, the way I would do it is like we actually seriously try to understand how GPT four works, and we actually seriously try to do interpretability research. We try to do various capability prediction things. We try to do various um, Redwood research style control stuff. Um, and then once the experts get together and they're like, okay, we really think we've exhausted what we can do with GPT-4. Okay, now maybe it's time to go a little bit further. And you know, maybe it's not, maybe we should just do more conceptual stuff and we should actually be thinking about safe by design architectures, which again, I think is like the, the most ambitious type of AI safety research, like having mathematical or formal arguments that certain types of designs are safe or that certain types of systems are safe under certain settings. Um, and then maybe after all of that period of exhausting, you know, it's like, okay, can we do interpretability? Can we do this? Can we do that? Then you're like, okay, maybe let's make something a little bit more powerful. And then you do the same process and you iterate, right? That is sort of like, in my opinion, what a like actually good iterative um, setup would look like. And then I worry that the like appeal of an iterative approach ends up actually in practice being used by companies to justify, well, all right, great. Like iterative stuff in theory is kind of good. And sometimes capabilities research ends up helping us do safety. So let's spend billions of dollars making a system that's a hundred times more powerful than our previous system. And let's, let's spend 90 plus percent of our resources and energy on capabilities research and have a small team of like 10 to 20 safety researchers who now get access to like the big new model. And I'm like, okay, like, I don't, you know, in theory, perhaps this kind of, we need to make some capabilities progress to make safety progress thing um, has some degree of legitimacy. 
and then the way it's implemented, I'm like, okay, this this is this clearly isn't what we what even the people who you know sort of buy into that approach would be uh, most happy with. Yeah, interesting. I do think yeah. So I guess those those two arguments were the the uh, anti-pause arguments that have genuinely kind of like made me stop and think. I think probably every single other one I've heard, I just think is like patently ridiculous <laughs> but i mean i think the one i'm most I'm being... to is like maybe it's just like too hard to coordinate um i think like well yeah i mean but that's that's not an argument against okay. trying that's an argument sure, against. Sure. i mean you know i i still think I, I think that's like totally possible that like it's it's like so hard to coordinate that it's never going to work but it just seems really odd that you wouldn't at least like <laughs> float the idea um i think the one that i find stupidest is the one that's like Maybe I shouldn't say stupid. Maybe I should be. I should be more diplomatic. I'm sorry. Um, but you know, the one that's like, oh well, if we had a pause and then during that time we didn't solve alignment or we didn't come up with some perfect solution to make AI like indefinitely safe, then like it would have been pointless and all you would have done is kick the can down the road, which is weird to me because if even if you think it's like completely overdetermined that like safety is doomed to fail and that we will all die if we create AGI then there's like a lot to be said for kicking the can down the road in my opinion um so that one I find bizarre the the the, the like let's not lose to China one is again extremely strange especially given that like <clears throat> I I my understanding is that they could just steal one of the US's models because the security practices are not robust enough so then it kind of seems like I mean again it's just I don't know. I just I I I find the arguments very confusing. But yeah, those two that I mentioned were the two that I I think do have something to them. But I think your responses are good. Um, and yeah, on the coordination one, I I agree. Like it might it might not work, but you know, I still think we should try. Um, yeah, no, I I agree. Definitely worth trying. And I I think I think that's just another thing that twenty twenty three AI policy discussions showed me is like. Um, it seems like a lot of folks seem to have these like strong intuitions about what is or isn't possible on the coordination front, but then like our models are just wrong. I, I, I mean, I think there's like a ton of uncertainty that people should have around what kinds of coordination things are possible, especially because this is actually unprecedented. Like sometimes people will say, well, we haven't been able to coordinate around other things. And my like sort of tongue in cheek response is, we didn't need to coordinate as much around other things. Like we, you know, there are some things I wish we had had better coordination with earlier. Like for instance, certain types of coordination could have helped with COVID or certain types of coordination could have helped with like avoiding the Cuban Missile Crisis, obviously. Um, but there haven't been that many case studies in human history where there has been a real existential threat, a real global security crisis in the, the modern world. Um, and so, when there is one, like I believe there is one, and a lot of the people I talk to who are still kind of like, oh, will coordination even occur? Like they would, they buy into the case statement, they would sign the case statement, they would think that this is one of the biggest extinction risks that the 21st century faces. And I'm kind of like, okay, like the fact that we couldn't coordinate on, I don't know, insert some very specific niche type of chemical weapon thing here, 
doesn't necessarily generalize to something that is, you know, orders of magnitude more important and more salient and something that's getting orders of magnitude more attention from world governments, right? We don't have uh, AI safety summits for every single thing. We don't have an EU AI Act and a US AI executive order and the UK AI Safety Institute and the US AI Safety Institute for like 99.9% .9 of issues, uh, especially that get established so quickly. So there's there's already some positive signs that the world is recognizing that the risks could be extremely severe uh, and touch on a lot of other things other than just global security, right? I think that's another important thing to emphasize here. Like I'm obviously someone who's primarily concerned about the global security risks, but I think a lot of the folks in the AI ethics community who are also worried about things like um, bias and discrimination, who are worried about how AI is going to be applied in various sectors in ways that could cause a lot of harm to individuals, um, also have a lot of fair points about that that lead into, okay, maybe society should be regulating this technology more than we typically regulate things. Um, uh, so anyway, that's, that's part of my response to the is coordination possible uh, argument. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think I have this like strange like gut sense that like I'm quite optimistic about the the idea that we could coordinate, but I think it's like I I don't have any good way of like substantiating that. <laughs> I feel like there is a tendency for people to especially in this field because it's so like new and it's so hard to make predictions and there are like yeah, like there aren't we don't have a lot of data points because we're in such an unprecedented situation like you said. There's a lot of kind of like people maybe projecting their general temperament onto how optimistic or pessimistic they are about how things will unfold like I just kind of get the sense of people who just have this general kind of cynicism about um humanity's ability to to coordinate then kind of like take that forward and turn that into like a um an actual probability of how likely they think it is to happen and it might just be that they yeah it's almost like it's like a vibe that they're like that they're like projecting onto everything um Maybe that's unfair, but I don't know. I, I, for some reason, I'm kind of optimistic, but then I don't have a good reason for that. I just am. Um. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, the other thing is like, there's there's kind of absolute levels of optimism, like, um, and then there's like, uh, how would I frame it? Like, even if, like, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm like, oh, 100%, yeah, global coordination is gonna work or anything like that. Um, but I think there's some kind of vibe around like, um, how would I frame it? Like having enough model uncertainty around coordination to take it as a serious and legitimate option. And then if we get pretty compelling evidence that it's not gonna happen, um, and there's some other alternative solution that seems promising, and that, that's another thing that of, of course there's a lot of debate over, then maybe let's shift away from our plan A. But why, why prematurely shoot ourselves in the foot or why prematurely compromise when we haven't actually had a concerted effort to get this kind of global coordination. Yeah, I, I do think that, that I'm worried that there's a like self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to this. Just kind of like people say like humans are bad at coordination, like humans can't, um, you know, they can't agree on stuff. There's, there are these like competitive dynamics which are just like so all-consuming. We'll never be able to do anything to overcome them. And it's kind of like, well, you know, I don't know. Yeah, if you have that attitude going in, then yeah, you probably you probably are gonna fail. Um, I don't know. So yeah, I, I I want to like push back against that kind of like fatalism whenever I see it because I think it's very toxic. Um, not that I don't understand why people are cynical. Obviously, like there are lots of good reasons to be cynical, but that it to me it seems like you should just operate from a position of it being possible to coordinate 
because you, you may as well, <laughs> even if you turn out to be wrong. Um, cool. But I, and I think that the one thing I'll say about the self-fulfilling prophecy point is like, people sometimes are, are thinking about how the world is going to unfold as if they aren't like active players in it. Like, um, I think that for anyone who's working in AI safety or thinking of working in AI safety, part of the appeal is that this is a frontier right now. Like people like me and some of the people I know are actually involved in figuring out what these things look like. Like there aren't thousands and thousands or millions and millions of people who are uh, knowledgeable enough or invested enough to be contributing to things like the EU AI Act or the AI Executive Order or what the US AI Safety Institute ends up doing or what the UK AI Safety Institute ends up doing. So in some ways I'm kind of like, um, you know, maybe coordination is hard and maybe that just means that we, people who care about AI safety, people who think we have some ideas that can make the world safer, we need to rise to the occasion. Um, and I've been reading some books that have been quite inspirational here of like political leaders who have made real change happen. Like uh, there's definitely some degree to which the societal forces need to be in your favor. And it's, it's you know, I don't want to purport that there's some like, you know, one man theory of history or even like, I don't know, 20 people theory of history thing. But it, it, it does, sometimes the explanations I hear from some folks who are pessimistic about AI, more pessimistic about AI policy than I am, um, seems to like let go of the fact that we have agency here that we actually it, it, someone like me who got involved in AI policy a few years ago um can or got involved in AI safety a few years ago even um can all of a sudden start talking to people about AI safety in meaningful ways have 60 70 80 congressional offices to meet with over the course of a few weeks and the the field might rise to the occasion the field might become a stronger thing in the next uh, uh, year or two in ways that um, are, you know, perhaps unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly good in order to meet the, the um, unprecedented challenge. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And I think like there's even something about like, um, like the language that is used around this issue that is completely does discount human agency when people will talk about, people will talk about like, like when will AGI arrive? as if, you know, that isn't a thing that people are like currently shoveling all of this money and time and resources into to creating or like making arrive. Like that does depend on, to an extent on what we do. It's not like something that's just gonna kind of randomly uh, emerge. And then, yeah. yeah, people talking about that, when people talk about their timelines or their like probability of doom and they talk about them as if they are these like, static things which don't totally depend on on what choices we make going forward like I do think that's kind of a a problem um, um so yeah I wish people, yeah, like, people could have asked like when will civil rights arrive or when will social security exactly. arrive or when will um uh let's pick another one when will like oh nuclear war is inevitable and it just like obviously the us and the soviets are going to to fight at some point and then i think that really does erase some of the important contributions of people who are involved in the civil rights movement of people who are involved yeah. in building like the social security stuff and johnson great society stuff and then um with like cold war stuff which i've been finding like a particularly interesting case study in terms of like you know global coordination um a lot of the social forces were basically pushing JFK to escalate things with the Soviets. 
And he and a rather small group of, of his close advisors were like, no, like, like, sure, you guys are saying like nuclear conflict is inevitable or nuclear escalation at the very least when the Soviets is inevitable. But like, I kind of get to be part of the conversation here. You know, and obviously he's the president, so he gets to be a particularly large part of the conversation here. But I, I do think that there are cases in history where a, a small and coordinated group of people who are fighting for good um, do end up triumphing. And I think it's important to remember that that's something that the AI safety community can aspire to. Yeah, and it, well, that is like, um, I guess people back at the height of the Cold War, like they did believe that nuclear war was like inevitable and people like, you know, they didn't save for retirement and whatever. And everyone was like, oh, a lot of people were like completely convinced that we were totally screwed. And as of yet, they've turned out to be wrong about that. So I think that is a lesson in um yeah not not being fatalistic about these things but maybe that's naive I, I keep saying this i keep being like i say a thing which i think is true and then i'm like i'm probably being really naive nobody listened to me but actually like i think that is um like an important lesson uh so i guess there are like a lot of uh policies and suggestions on the table right now um around how we might be able to um govern ai development are there any in particular that you're like um, particularly excited about or that you think have a lot of potential? Yeah, this is a great question. And I, I, I do think that in general, AI policy discussions should be focused more on like actual tangible policies. And it's very easy to say like, ooh, we care about safety without being like, well, what should we do? Um, my by far favorite policy, and I, I recently wrote a report with one of my colleagues, uh, Andrea, um, and we talk about some of the policies we're most excited about, and this was released before the UK AI Safety Summit. Um, we talk about um, a couple of policies that we're quite excited about, and the one I'm by far most excited about would be a ban on superintelligence, a ban on smarter than human AI systems until we like we the collective the, the world leaders slash ai uh, experts believe that we can develop that kind of technology in a way that is safe and controllable um and the way i could see this working is through compute limitations and some sort of international artificial intelligence consortium and we talked about both of these ideas in the in the piece but compute limitations would make it so that uh you can do ai development up until a certain point um, and then at that point, you have to be reviewed by a nationally certified, by, by a national regulator that's certified by an international body. Um, and then there's another point at which you just can't keep going unless you're in the international a, uh, artificial general intelligence consortium. Uh, and then that thing is this like safety focused, security focused international institution that is tasked with figuring out how are we going to control smarter than human AI systems? What kinds of things do we need to do to understand them to make sure they're robustly safe? And the key thing here is that there's no longer a race. If there's only one smarter than human AI project, this opens up so much more room for gradual AI progress, for doing that kind of thing we talked about earlier, where you're actually really trying to milk a current uh, model for all of the safety value that it has before you feel like you need to develop something more powerful. Whereas in the status quo, like without some sort of ban or rather strict licensing system, I think the race between Microsoft and Google and Facebook and OpenAI and Anthropic and others will mean that even those with good intentions, and of course, I don't think you know all of these actors have uh, you know recognized the, the risks as much as they should, but even those with good intentions are not going to have the time and kind of um, like cautious culture that one needs 
to do the kind of thing that uh, very well might be required to control smarter than human AI systems. Um, so that's the one I've been been like most uh, bullish on. But uh, the other thing I'm excited about is, um, yeah, having emergency response capacity. Most so having cool. someone in the US government, for instance, who or some team in the US government that is tracking the risks from frontier AI systems and is able to notify people if there is some sort of imminent risk. So if there's some sort of model that they um, are tracking that can develop new types of biological weapons or a model that seems to be showing signs that it can escape human control, there's some very clear chain of command. There's some very clear, like, if we notice X, then we will do Y, and then Z people will take this action to make sure that this imminent risk is is mitigated. Um, I think it's it's plausible that we don't end up being able to detect those kinds of risks in time, which is why the ban on smarter than human AI systems would be very valuable or would be like more valuable than this. But if we are somewhat fortunate and there is some sort of uh, evidence of imminent danger that could uh, cause the, the government to realize that there's an imminent global security risk, I think we should uh, make sure that we have the kind of tracking and reporting systems and emergency response plans in place such that we are able to respond very swiftly in the event of that kind of emergency. Um, one one sort of rhetorical way I've heard this explained is like, like ban on super intelligence right now would be like, yeah, let's not do that. But this emergency response thing and emergency uh, powers thing would be more like, hey, fine, keep going for now, but we should at the very least be able to stop things later if there's like very clear evidence of imminent risk. Um, and then the third thing I would say, and this one is, I think, um, one that a lot of people are advocating for right now, and I, I think it's like a very important, straightforward one, is just making sure there's more funding available for government institutions that are trying to do AI policy work. So for example, in the US, uh, the executive order was very exciting and there's gonna be some new reporting stuff and there's going to be the US AI Safety Institute. Um, and this is going to be, my impression is that this is going to be run by NIST, the um, Department of Commerce's National Institute of Standards and Technology. Um, NIST does not have a ton of people right now, and they're, you know, understandably, uh, you know, interested in AI policy. They were developing the AI risk management framework uh, even before uh, this, like, recent explosion of, of AI policy stuff. But I think in order to do a good job and in order to actually make sure that the US AI Safety Institute is doing well, in order to actually make sure that their safety standards work goes well, and in order to actually make sure that they're like monitoring the AI scene and making good recommendations for further policy, I think it's going to be quite important for them to have more funding, for them to have more staff. And whoever in the government is taking the lead on frontier AI regulation or AI safety standards or AI monitoring for them to not be funding constrained or for them to be as like little funding constrained as possible so they can do their work as well as possible. So I would say, you know, banning super intelligence, I'm a fan of, um, licensing stuff I'm a fan of, emergency response infrastructure, definitely a fan of, think it can be like done right now and give us like a lot of optionality later. And then funding for government organizations that are going to be involved in the AI policy discussions and future regulations, uh, most notably NIST and the USA Safety Institute right now. Yeah, all of these sound fantastic, especially the, the banning super intelligence one. Love that. Big, big fan. <laughs> Let's push for that. Okay, cool. Probably soon we should wrap up, but 
final question um do you have any advice for people who want to get into uh, AI safety or AI policy or who are like thinking about doing a career pivot um, into the field, uh, yeah, what would you recommend for them? Yeah, great question. So it's gotten a lot hotter in the last year, obviously. Um, I think one thing that I would recommend people try to think about is like, what, what skills do they feel like they have that could help them stand out? And how can they demonstrate that to people who are more experienced or more senior in the field? So oftentimes people like um, think they want to be like AI policy researchers. And I'm like, okay, you know what the best thing to do to make it really easy for people who might be interested in hiring you would be? Like do some AI policy research. And it doesn't have to be great. I'm not saying like write like a fancy 200 page report that has everything figured out. But um, people who have blog posts, people who have communicated stuff on Twitter, I think AI safety stuff is actually very active on Twitter. And there are at least some um, folks who have like the ability to hire people or the ability to fund people who, um, you know, pay attention to like who's, who's you know, on Twitter. Um, but yeah, having some blog posts or having some, some you know, writing that can um, help someone like me or someone who uh, else who's you know been around the block for I mean not even that long but like a little bit um, to like quickly see like okay like does this person seem like a just like a good writer and thinker and then b um, do I sort of vibe with their style do I vibe you know and, and that kind of thing uh, already can make it much more likely that like um, someone reaches out to the person or someone's interested in having them uh, you know interview at their their organization. So that's one thing I would I would say. It also is just like great for figuring out what you actually believe, which of course is important. Like there's there's kind of the advice you give people on like how to get a job, and then separately there's advice on like how to actually do good work. And sometimes they're they're different. But the nice thing about writing or doing small projects that that convey your skills is like it, it can be a nice way of doing both. Um, in terms of the actually how to get involved stuff, um, I think a lot of people underestimate how few people there really are who are working full-time in the space or meaningfully part-time in the space. Um, a lot of the people who might seem like famous or out of reach are actually pretty accessible. And so yeah. I was- <laughs> Oh my God, I've realized. I was like, oh, uh -huh. I didn't tweet a bit. And then I was like, wow, I've already got to the center of this world because it's such yeah. a small thing. It's like, yeah, it's so accessible. Um, and I think the norms are also very much like people should be should feel free to reach out. Like you're never entitled yeah. to a response from someone. But I don't think people are going to be annoyed at people for sending intro emails or mentioning that people are interested in the space. Uh, people can email me. People can get in touch with you. You're not even working in the space, but you've already managed to network really well. Um, DM me anytime. So, um, I think those are some things to to consider. Just like having a lot of informational chats with people. Like I had a bunch of informational chats with people um, in 2022 when I was getting involved, and I think those were really useful. So you know doing that kind of thing is very nice. Um, anything else I would say? Um, like it's not too hard to just find some sort of like open question, I think, and start trying to contribute to it. Um, and I, I have lists of open questions. A lot of people who work in AI policy have lists of open questions. If you cold email someone and say, hey, what are some things that I could work on? Or what are some questions you're curious about? that if I were good at answering them, you would be like excited to like talk to me or you'd be excited to um, hire me or recommend me for something. I think those kinds of things are good. Um, 
Yeah. What other advice would I have? I guess just when when actually interviewing for organizations, really try to ask like what the organization has done or is doing that they think is actually meaningful in AI policy. I think in a lot of non-technical fields, and I think this is true of AI policy, it's sort of easy to get away with like not really doing anything because you just, you know, you're like writing things and thinking about things and having meetings. And I think it's important that as the field matures a bit, we get to the point where we are actually asking people like, what is the most meaningful thing your organization has done in the last three months? Um, and like, actually be concrete about it. Like, did you write text for the EUAI Act? Like, you know, did you end up influencing anyone? Or did you kind of have a bunch of meetings and like, you don't really know to what extent people actually took your advice seriously, which is not to say that those organizations in the latter camp are, are bad. Like, it's really hard to be like, to the point where you have like tangible policy wins, especially in a field that's so young. But I do see a lot of maybe newer people, uh, maybe what I would call like idolizing or romanticizing or sort of like uh, obsessing over certain organizations or certain like popular figures in AI policy. And I think like some degree of like humbleness slash like some degree of like, okay, wait, am I am I just getting starstruck? Or do I feel like I've actually um, thought about what kinds of policies this person or this organization is advocating for? And I've actually looked at their track record and I have some specific things that impress me about them. Um, and I think that general mentality will also probably get people further. Like if, if someone talks to me and they're like, oh my gosh, you're a kosh, you're so great. I love, you know, you're doing a policy. That's so useful. Like, that's nice. I like my ego being stroked there. But it's like a lot cooler to me if someone's like, hey, I have an understanding of your work. And I think actually the emergency response infrastructure stuff you're advocating for is overrated. And instead, you should be more focused on this other thing. Or, you know, I read your post about the congressional staffers and um, I had this like interesting question about it. Like just getting into the substance with people, I think, is is a good um thing to do and again it also you know in terms of not just getting a job but also doing good work it's like training the skills that will hopefully help someone do good work yeah great advice hopefully people follow it um <laughs> and yeah like you said people can get in contact with you um if they have any questions i assume you're open to just receiving emails from people who um are curious about this stuff yeah um, oh and one last thing i'll note is like um, sometimes people are interested and they don't actually know much about AI. That is also totally okay. Um, in fact, some of the AI safety organizations that I'm uh, particularly excited about, they already have people who know about AI safety, but there are so many other skills ranging from like project management to like general organizational ops skills to like someone who's had experience in policy before, not even AI policy, but just any sort of tech policy or any sort of uh, interesting policy experience. There's there's a lot of room basically for people who maybe are interested in this stuff, but have their own skill set to get involved. And oftentimes, I think organizations need those kinds of people even more than the sort of like AI safety thinkers, because like people who are part of core AI safety organizations often already, you know, know slash are like core AI safety thinker people. So I would say don't, uh, people shouldn't underestimate 
themselves, if they have relevant experience or if they have experience in some other area, there might be ways in which it is relevant or helpful to AI safety orgs that um, they might not be aware of. And people like me are happy to, to you know, get emails like that. Like, all right, Rand, I'm not an AI person, but I know this stuff. Is there any way I can help, you know? Yeah, I guess like a, a good rule of thumb, if you're wondering whether you can contribute to AI safety or not, is that it's like a, yeah, there's probably quite a strong likelihood that you can, given that even just by paying attention to it, you're already quite far ahead. Um, but maybe, it won't, well, it's probably not true for everyone, but I think it's, yeah, definitely if you're thinking about whether you can contribute, there's, yeah, a strong chance that you have something to offer. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. It's been fun. Um, and I will link your Twitter in the description and everyone should go follow you on Twitter. Um, and yeah, thank you. Cool. Thank you, Sarah. Okay.